church backgrounds that are present in this room cannot be overstated. There are those with an Episcopal background, some with a Catholic background. There's Methodists, there's Batterage backgrounds, and this list could go on and on and on. And depending on your background, your mindset of definitions and descriptions when it comes to the word sacrament could mean something very different. And so what I want to do this morning is to level the playing field a bit for us. I want to do my best to provide a common understanding of what I think we mean when we say the word sacrament. There's a lot of ways that I could do this, but instead of just talking conceptually about sacraments, I want to walk through the theological minefield that's found in John chapter 6. I can't promise you that after a short time this morning that all the complexities of sacramental theology will be utterly explained, but what I can promise you is this. Sacramental theology isn't some weirdo concept. Sacramental theology is how we make sense of some of the most difficult things found in the Bible. Sacramental theology gives us a way to understand difficult verses and chapters. And I think if we just look carefully at the words of Christ in John chapter 6, and we use everything that's at our disposal, then maybe, just maybe, we can leave this room today with a common understanding of sacrament. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6, and let's hop right in. Now, on the surface, and certainly for those present when Jesus first said these words, the claims he makes in John chapter 6 are are absolutely unprecedented in rabbinical teaching. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus tells the people this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, when the people heard this, they grumbled among themselves and they asked, How could Jesus say something like this? Why in the world would this guy say that he's bread? And just a few verses later, Jesus echoes those same words again. In verse 51 of John 6, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The response of those who heard Jesus was exactly the same as before, except this time they weren't grumbling about Jesus calling himself manna from heaven. This time their displeasure was directed at something even more outrageous he had said. Jesus told them in explicit detail that the bread he gives for the world is his flesh. Previously, maybe somebody thought Jesus was just speaking metaphorically, but now he seems to have left the realm of metaphor altogether and seems to be talking about something literal. And what he's saying is so repugnant to the Jews that it's almost unimaginable for us. And as they discussed, as they disputed among themselves about this crazy claim of Jesus, Jesus seemed to get even crazier. Look in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, I can imagine there were people listening to Jesus speak. They were struggling to understand what he was saying, but they were just about to get it. They were just about to understand. And just as they were about to wrap their minds around eating his flesh, just as they were about to wrap their minds around him being bread from heaven, Jesus tosses in, oh yeah, by the way, you got to drink my blood. And this is the very first place that I want to stop this morning. The Jews had a concept of bread from heaven. 
in the Exodus, manna fell from heaven, and so at least they had a framework for understanding a phrase like that. Jews understood eating flesh, certainly not the flesh of people, but at least they understood eating meat. They weren't vegetarians. But the first thing you must see in this text, what you cannot miss here, is the strong cultural prohibition the Jews had towards touching blood, let alone drinking it. Jewish butchers would go so far as to completely drain an animal of its blood before it was butchered for meat. Blood wasn't something a Jew messed around with. It was off limits. Yet here Jesus isn't just saying touch it. He's saying drink it. And then he adds, if you fail to drink it, then you forfeit eternal life. So what's going on? Well, the answer might surprise you. You see, the Jews actually had a story in their history that I think can explain part of what Jesus means here. A story that's in their past that would have helped them immensely if they just would have made the connection. And that story centers around the person of David. One of the most moving stories about King David comes from a time when he was fighting the Philistines. David was from Bethlehem and the Philistines were occupying his hometown. And there was no way that David was just going to sit around and let that happen. So David and a bunch of his loyal men, they set out to free Bethlehem from the rule of the Philistines, but their battle was tough. The Philistines wouldn't surrender. One day there was a lull in the battle, and David found himself to be very thirsty. And David just happened to say out loud how much he would like to have a drink of water from that well that he remembered in Bethlehem. Three of David's bravest men, men who loved and respected David, men that would die for David, heard David say this. And unbeknownst to David, these three set out to go behind enemy lines and retrieve a drink of water from that exact well. As it turns out, they were successful. These three men returned back to David unscathed, carrying the water David had longed to drink. But David didn't drink the water they brought him. Instead, David says this in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 17. Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this, Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? David didn't want to profit from the bravery of his men. He didn't want to benefit from their readiness to put their lives on the line for him. And so David takes this water they retrieved and he pours it on the ground. You see, in the mind of David, the sacrifice those men were willing to make for him was so great that to profit from their brave deed was likened to drinking their blood. Now, with that story in mind, take just a moment and think of the words of Jesus again in John chapter 6. When Jesus says that you must eat his flesh, he isn't commanding his followers to become cannibals. When Christ says that you must drink his blood, he isn't talking about his hemoglobin. Of course, he isn't asking us to do those things. Instead, I think what Jesus means is what David meant. David refuses to drink the blood of his friends. He refused to profit by them risking their lives. But Jesus turns to them and says, I'll do you one better. Jesus tells them that he, the king himself, will put his own life at risk, that he will lose his life for the sake of his friends, and that in and through his sacrifice, his friends will profit from his death. They will drink his blood, and by doing so, their thirst will be quenched, and their lives will be saved. And if you drink the blood of Jesus, if you profit from the sacrifice he made from you, 
then you will consume something so potent that even death itself will fail to hold on to you. The sacrifice of the king will be so real and substantial that nothing in the heavens above or on the earth below can dilute its power. And a failure to drink it, a failure to receive the bounty of his sacrifice will only bring death. Now, I do think some of what Jesus says in John chapter 6 is a cultural tool, an idiom that the people should have understood and shouldn't have taken literally. But be that as it may, that doesn't mean I think the words of Jesus are only metaphorical. You see, when Jesus says that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, there's more going on than just idioms and metaphors. There's something else going on in John chapter 6 that transcends the Jewish culture and even language itself. The words of Jesus, the command to eat his flesh and to drink his blood, are not a purely non-physical event. The very words chosen by Jesus in this chapter leave little room for this to be solely an inner act of grateful contemplation. This isn't just an exercise in memory. When John uses the word eat, he deliberately uses a Greek word that is very closely associated with the physical act of eating. The most direct translation of the word eat in John 6 would be the word munch or chew. And as everyone knows, munching and chewing are very physical acts. You've never metaphorically munched. As you also know, Every Sunday, we munch and chew together in the Eucharistic feast. And when we're finished, we pray a prayer that contains these words. So to eat the flesh of your dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood. Guys, those are strong, strong words. Words so strong that God-fearing, Jesus-loving Christians hold a variety of opinions on what those words of Jesus mean. Some Christians view the Eucharist as mainly inner contemplation. Some view it as the physical consumption of Jesus' body. And guess what? I am not here to settle that debate this morning. Thank God. (laughs) I'm not going to wade into that issue and try to convince you one way or another. But what I will do is frame the question as well as I possibly can. And with that frame in place, turn and look at the words of Jesus again. So here's, here's my best shot. Remember, we began by saying the words of Christ in John 6, the command of Jesus to eat his flesh and to drink his blood, contained metaphorical, non-physical ideas, non-physical realities. And if correctly understood, you see that Jesus wasn't commanding anyone to become cannibals or to defile themselves by drinking blood. No, he was using physical objects, physical realities to describe non-physical realities. But... Then I said that the words of Jesus left little room for his command to be purely a non-physical event. The words of Christ in John 6 are indelibly connected to a physical act. So how can both of these things be true? How can Jesus' command contain both non-physical and physical realities? Isn't that a contradiction? Well, the short answer is no. No, it's not. You see, Christians believe that the physical world is real. It's not an illusion. Christians aren't Gnostics. Christians also believe that the physical world matters so much to God that God left his dwelling place and came into this physical world and took on human form. 
But for as much as Christians believe that the physical world is real, we also believe that there's more to reality than just the physical world. Christians aren't materialists. Christians believe that there is a spiritual world, a world where God and the angels and all the company of heaven dwell, and that non-physical world exists alongside the material one. The physical and spiritual worlds can overlap one another. They can inhabit one another. They can permeate one another. And Christians hold both of these things to be true, material and non-material realities existing together. Christians believe the physical and spiritual realms are actually made for one another. Christians believe that when God created physical reality, he purposely made it compatible with the spiritual. Christians believe that God created the physical world to be compatible with the spiritual because it was God's intention all along to descend from the spiritual and inhabit the physical. In the beginning, it was God's intention to descend from the heights of heaven and make his dwelling among men on this physical earth. You can hear the physical and non-physical duality when Christians talk about salvation. When Christians say that someone has repented and has been saved, when they say that someone has been born again and filled with the Spirit, are we speaking only of metaphor? Do Christians believe that you were metaphorically saved from some metaphorical sin, that you're metaphorically filled by the Spirit? Of course not. If you have been born again, then in your physical body resides the very Spirit of God. But since we believe that the Spirit resides in your physical body, does that mean someone could cut you open and locate the Spirit in your body? No. When we say that Jesus lives in my heart, are we talking about the four-chambered organ that's in my chest? Of course not. Christians believe that the Spirit of God really does reside in their physical bodies, and at the same time, Christians believe that that Spirit is not discoverable in them physically. The infilling of the Spirit is not metaphorical, but it's also not literal. It's something altogether different. It's sacramental. A true spiritual reality that fills and inhabits a real physical one. And if you can frame that in your mind, if you can begin to grasp that the spiritual and physical realities can co-inhabit one another, that spiritual and physical realities can dwell in and through one another, then the words of Jesus, when applied to the Eucharist, become much more understandable. It seems to me that Christians have no issue believing that a spiritual reality can inhabit and permeate a physical one. Because that's exactly what we say when we talk about being filled by the Spirit ourselves. And so it seems to me that we should have no problem believing the same exact thing about the Eucharist as well. So far as I can tell, the Eucharist seems to be a point of convergence. In the Eucharist, elements of Israel's past, elements of Jesus' present, and even elements of a future yet to occur are all converging. We see promises kept and promises that are yet to be fulfilled. At the Last Supper, Christ celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. The Passover meal was considered ancient even in the days of Jesus. By the time of the events of John's gospel, the Passover meal had been celebrated for some 15 centuries. This was a profoundly sacred tradition. 
a tradition that recalled God's power, his mercy, his provision for his people. Yet with all of its history and importance and deep significance, Christ, sitting in a hole-in-the-wall upper room, pronounced the celebration of the Passover meal as the disciples knew it was at an end. The Passover, as they understood it, was completed, and in its place, Jesus would establish a new tradition, a new meal. And this meal would recall not just God's triumph over Pharaoh. It would not just recall Israel's escape from Egypt. This new Passover meal would celebrate God's triumph over hell and Satan. It would recall all mankind's escape from sin and death. In and through Christ the Passover lamb, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, everyone could celebrate God's provision. Everyone could celebrate their exodus from enslavement, from escaping from sin and death itself. And the Eucharist is that exact celebration. The Eucharist is a celebration of God's sacrifice and provision, his love and mercy and faithfulness to all mankind. It's a celebration that has its origin some 4,000 years ago in Egypt. But it's also a celebration that is renewed and supplied with new meaning by Jesus 2,000 years ago in an upper room. And it's a celebration that continues to this very day. And you are invited to come to this rail and join in that celebration every single Sunday. And as if all of that weren't enough, there is still yet more. The Eucharist isn't just a celebration of what God has done in the past and what God is doing in the present The Eucharist itself is a foretaste of what God has promised to do in the future. One day, very soon, the Lord Jesus will split the eastern sky and he will call his church home. Those who are in his kingdom, those who love Jesus with their whole hearts, will be wed to Jesus just as a bride weds a groom. Our long engagement to Jesus will be over, and in a way that we can't currently fathom, we will be his, and he will be ours. And after our nuptial vows are made, and we are forever sealed as his very own, Christ has promised to host what most assuredly will be the biggest shindig this world has ever seen. The book of the Revelation calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb. And at the culmination of all things, we The church of Jesus will sit and feast with Jesus. We will feast together in the presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And until that glorious day comes, Christ has given us a meal to hold us over. He's given us a meal as a promise, a meal that satisfies, but a meal that yet deepens our hunger for him. And the Eucharist is that exact feast. As I know the world can be a dark, cruel place. Even those who love Jesus can find themselves beaten down and discouraged, feeling cut off, unloved. Even those who have a hope in the world to come can find themselves struggling to put one foot in front of the other in this one. It's easy in this world to feel isolated and alone, to feel as if no one really knows you, no one understands you, to feel as if no one cares if you come or go. It's easy to believe that you don't fit in, that you have no role, It's easy to believe that your life is without consequence and that your value is essentially nothing. Guys, I've been there. Many of us have been there. Maybe you're there right now. If that's you, can I give you something to hold on to? 
God has made a promise, a promise that he can make you his very own if you would just have him. God has made a promise to make a way for you, a way for you to be with him. God has made a promise that he will not leave you nor forsake you, and one day he will come for you and claim you as his own. God has promised you all of this and goes one step further. God takes all of the unseen acts of faithfulness in the past, all of the unseen provisions in the present, all of the unrealized promises of the future, and he makes them visible to us in the Eucharistic feast. God makes the invisible visible. That is sacramental theology. I sincerely hope this morning that we have a clearer understanding of what sacrament can mean. I hope that I've communicated how beautiful it is, the wonders that are within it. And I can't think of a better way to end a sermon about sacraments than to witness and participate in the sacrament of baptism itself. You guys ready?